I know Charles and Tricia would be delighted if you would open your Bibles and follow along. There will be Bibles in the seat in front of you. And the first reading is found on page 1012. St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, on page 1012. Verse 27 to 30, and then 34 to 37. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? second reading is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 14, and can be found on page 1180 in the Church Bible. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. O night divine, when Christ was born. Amen. Please take a seat. 
would be a great help if you had that passage from Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, in front of you, page 1012. Well, what a day, what a, what a morning. What a joy to see so many of you, long-standing friends, I don't say old friends anymore, long-standing friends with whom I've ministered in different churches, London and the Northeast. Uh, it has been a privilege to serve such an all-age cosmopolitan church, 15 nationalities at least. Quite a few of our number have gone overseas to serve Christ. Some of you I've married, and you are here today with your children, many of whom I've baptized. I've been here so long that many of them I have to look up to, because they're taller than I am. Some of you have come a very long way to be with us, and we appreciate that so much. But there are others missing today who have gone to a better place, who have gone home. How we miss them especially on occasions like this. So what can I say? The last sermon after 42 years of ordained ministry, what can I leave after 24 years with this wonderful church family? Now, the last words of famous people can give insight into their lives. So the writer Oscar Wilde is reputed to have said, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has to go. Humphrey Bogart, the film star, apparently said, I should never have switched from scotch to martinis. And King George V, on being told by his doctor that he would soon be well and able to visit the seaside resort of Bognor, made it very clear in uncomplimentary language that that was not what he wanted. But a last sermon is rather different. And so this morning I want to share just two truths which have been central to my life and ministry, and there emerge from Mark chapter 8. And the first truth is this, the supremacy of Jesus, the supremacy of Jesus. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. What about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. So Jesus and his disciples walking along and he asked them who they thought he was. What was people were saying? John the Baptist, Elijah, clearly someone. And then he put the disciples on the spot. What about you? Who do you say I am? And without hesitation, Peter answered, You are the Messiah, meaning the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Now, what made Peter say that? Well, he'd been with Jesus almost from the beginning of his ministry. He'd seen him teach with amazing authority, not like the local clergy. He'd also seen authority exercised over creation to calm a storm, to heal disease, to cast out demons, and over death itself. More than once, Jesus brought someone back to life. If you were to look in the marble up here, there's Jairus' daughter being healed in the right-hand panel. Only God can do that. And Peter had also seen Jesus' great compassion to the vulnerable and the outcast. Beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we read how he came across a leper who begged Jesus to heal him. And the passage describes Jesus as indignant, indignant at what that dreadful disease had done to that man, not just physically, but socially, cut off from family and friends and excluded from worship. 
And so Jesus healed him immediately. And this convinced Peter about Jesus' identity, that he was God in the flesh. But what about you, gathered here for a final farewell? What about you? Because that same question is personal to all of us in church this morning. It's one of the most important questions you will ever face. Because how you will answer will affect your eternal destiny. The trouble is that here in the West, in Europe and North America, we're living in one of the most secular ages known to humanity. All over the world, in China, Russia, South America and Africa, the church is growing at a phenomenal rate. But our media make it almost impossible to hear the truth. If all I knew about Christianity was from our media, I wouldn't be a Christian today. And it has to be admitted the church doesn't always help. Dull services, irrelevant sermons, and sadly, even some clergy who don't believe what they're supposed to believe. The story is told of a man chatting over the fence to his neighbor about the local church. I wouldn't go to that church, he said. It's full of hypocrites. Do go, his neighbor said. One more won't make any difference. If Jesus is considered at all, the contemporary view is that he was perhaps a good teacher, but a tragic idealist whose dreams came to nothing. He can therefore be easily ignored or dismissed. However, for many, he doesn't even cross their radar except as a swear word. So let me make a suggestion. Consider the evidence. Consider the evidence. It's quite astonishing. 1930, Albert Ross, an atheist writing under the pseudonym Frank Morrison, published a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he'd set out to disprove the resurrection of Christ because he believed quite correctly that if Christ did not rise from the dead, Christianity will collapse. We're wasting our time. After months of painstaking research, his book was published, and the first chapter, which you can still see today, is called The Book That Refused to Be Written. For Morrison, far from disproving it, had become totally convinced of the resurrection. The atheist had become a Christian. He had met the risen Christ. Now, there is overwhelming evidence for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He towers over history. He is not that gentle Jesus, meek and mild of the child's prayer. He's one whose authority has inspired men, women, and children down the ages. Can you guess who said this? I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Who said it? It was Napoleon Bonaparte. Jesus is alive. We've just said in the creed that one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. So may I ask you gently again, 
who do you say Jesus is? And the key truth about Jesus, which took me time to understand until someone explained it to me, is that Jesus came to die. Look at verse 31 and 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man, namely himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus shocked Peter. How could the Messiah die? But did you notice the repetition of the word must? Christ's death was a necessity. Peter didn't understand it then. He did later. Listen to his words in his first letter. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You and I and all of humanity were made to be fulfilled only when living in a deep relationship with Almighty God. It's part of our DNA. We're not just physical and emotional beings. We are spiritual beings. The Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes tells of a king who could find no satisfaction in life. He tried everything. Academic study, grand projects. He had huge wealth. He had a harem. And as he said, I denied myself nothing. Even work was unsatisfying. Yet it all led him to conclude that life was meaningless. And tragically, that is the conclusion of many today. Until, that is, he found God. That changed everything. We've heard it in other people today. And he also discovered that God had set a longing for eternity in the heart of every human being. That is also part of our DNA. Not just physical, not just emotional, but spiritual beings longing for eternity. And so our refusal to acknowledge God, our rebellion against him, is what the Bible calls sin. That separates us from God. But when Jesus died, he took our sins and its consequences on himself. He was separated from a terrible moment. He was God-forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He paid the penalty for our rebellion. And as a result, he made it possible for anyone, whatever their past, whatever their present, to enter a life-changing relationship with God. That is the good news. We do not live a life of despair. We live a life of certainty, of joy, and of hope. Because, of course, more than that, since Jesus conquered death and rose from the dead, if we commit our lives to him, we too will conquer death. We will have the certainty that our eternal destiny is secure. Just try asking at a drinks party, oh, by the way, let's talk about death. That's a conversation killer. But we can. I am. That is why he's called Savior. He saves us from an eternity without God. So, my utter conviction, Jesus is supreme over creation over history. History is moving to a moment of consummation when he will return, Christ will return, the old order of things will come to an end. He is supreme over death. He is supreme as our Savior. That has driven me since the moment I understood it. 
The second truth has been central to my life and work is this, the transforming power of Jesus. The transforming power of Jesus. One of the most stunning examples of this, of course, is the Apostle Paul. He described himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. I think he had a temper, Griff. He himself uh, knew a life-changing encounter with the risen Christ. He became one of the greatest leaders of the Christian church, one of the greatest intellects. Now, it has been my privilege to see those life-changing encounters in every church where I have served. In Middlesbrough, I remember a young, very cool, leather jacket-wearing shop floor worker so changed after his encounter with Christ that he went into work the next day and found he could not swear anymore. It wasn't that he didn't want to, he just couldn't. And his workmates immediately spotted it. They ragged him mercilessly, but they acknowledged that something had happened. In Darlington, it was the adult children of a widow, a senior member of the church, who asked to see me. They were very worried about their mother. So I waited, as you can imagine, anxiously to hear what the problem was. She doesn't lock her bedroom door at night, they said. She'd lost her fear of living alone as a result of an encounter with Jesus. And here at St. Michael's, there was a young and very successful American lawyer who lived with his family just around the corner in Chester Row. And his wife became a Christian and her children came to St. Michael's. We never saw him. Eventually, they went back to the States. And there, through a men's group, he was challenged. He had seen the huge change in his wife, and he gave his life to Christ. Now, he flew back to be with us here at a special service, and I'll never forget what he said. What makes a man who, when he lived around the corner, never came to church, fly thousands of miles across the Atlantic to speak here today? The answer the transforming power of Jesus. Now, these stories I've seen repeated over and over again, and many of you could speak of the wonderful way Jesus has transformed your life. We've already heard some stories. The transforming power of Jesus is amazing. Now, my father was thrilled when I went to Cambridge to read law. He wanted me to be a barrister like he was. It was therefore a great disappointment when I told him I was going to be an ordained minister in the church. But it recently struck me that in one sense, my life has involved doing exactly what he wanted because week by week in church, I've been advocating, I've been an advocate, but for the case for Christ, testifying to his risen living power. So I want to finish with a plea. And it's based on Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Listen closely to these words. Then he called the crowd to him, And said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? My very final point, my third point, is this. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Jesus never minced his words. He never hid the terms and conditions of following him in small print. He did not promise a trouble-free life. In fact, quite the opposite. And here he talks about taking up your cross to follow him. That means being prepared even to go against the culture in what we believe and how we behave, 
It means having priorities that affect how we spend our time, how we spend our money. Very sadly, there are some who would prefer to have what they think is a problem-free life, who would rather save it. I mentioned before how some years ago I heard of a Christian leader who became very successful in business. He was more and more immersed in success and producing wealth. And that moved him further and further away from God, so that a young colleague said, so sobering, he never lets his faith get in the way of his career. That, I believe, is what Jesus meant by gaining the whole world, yet forfeiting your soul. So that's my final thought. Dear, dear brothers and sisters, don't waste your life. In a book with that title, Don't Waste Your Life, American pastor John Piper tells of a couple who retired in their 50s to Florida. I'm hoping to visit Florida sometime. They bought a boat and they acquired a collection of seashells and they played softball. Somebody must tell me what softball is. But listen to Piper's words. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, look, Lord, look. See my shells. And Piper concludes, that is a tragedy. Maybe you've been drifting as a Christian. You've lost the passion you once had. Maybe you've been on the fringe, nervous about committing to Jesus. Don't spend all your precious time and energy on gaining that which has no lasting value. Instead, commit to Christ, and he will never let you down. Keep that eternal perspective on all you do. Press on. Did you hear that from St. Paul? Twice he said it. Press on to gain the prize of heaven. Aim to take as many people with you as you can, as somebody once said. It's win-win, isn't it? What's to lose? Following Christ is the greatest adventure yet. And it's not over yet. There's so much more to come for us all. Let's pray.